0: who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week This is the word of the Lord. Thanks take
1: Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we come to you now uh, asking for your help because we don't need just human words, but we need words from heaven. Uh, I thank you for every single person that's here in this room that none of us are here by accident. Some of us, we're here almost every week, and this is kind of what we do. Others of us, it's it's been a long time since we've been in a church. And and for some of us, this is the very first time we are ever sitting in a Christian worship service. And yet here we all are. None of us are here by accident. We're here because you've brought us here, because you've, you've welcomed us here, you've called us here. And so we pray that you would help us now, that you'd give us ears to hear all that you have to say to us in this text there's so much good news this morning would you would you speak through me would you even work through my my own weakness my my own inability to really express just how good news this is for us this morning help me to disappear and make your son so glorious to us so beautiful to us we want to know Him. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Well, for the last couple months, we've been in a series, and we've been looking at uh, the parables in Luke's Gospels. Now, in Luke's Gospel, now uh, a parable is just another word for stories, and Jesus told a lot of them. Jesus told a lot of stories. They were—I've kind of said this throughout this series—that the parables were Jesus' main method of teaching. About 75 percent of all of his words in the Gospels came in stories. It's pretty amazing. Um, Jesus loved to tell stories. C.S. Lewis, who was he was uh, he was a philosopher, he was a theologian, uh, he was a Christian apologist, but he was also a storyteller. And you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of books. He wrote books like *Mere Christianity* and *The Problem of Pain* and kind of all of these books that are. Kind of these, these philosophical treatises on the intellectual credibility of Christianity. Very kind of heady stuff. But but he also loved to write stories. Stories like the Chronicles of Narnia. He loved to write fairy tales, actually. And one time when Lewis was talking about why it was that he loved to write fairy tales, he said this. He said... Uh, I wrote fairy tales because the fairy tale seemed like the ideal form for the stuff that I had to say. I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to, an obligation. To feel can freeze feelings. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it were something medical. But supposing that by casting all of these things, all these spiritual truths and realities, into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency... Could one thus, could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. What Lewis is saying is this, is that stories are a way to kind of steal past our watchful reasoning. This is exactly why Jesus uses them. Because it challenges all of the things that we think we already know about God. All these false assumptions that we have about who God is and what God is like and how you know God and what it means to follow him. And you see, that is true with every story that Jesus tells, including this story in Luke chapter 18. Get this, Jesus tells a story about a moral religious man and an immoral irreligious man. And the whole point of the story is this, is that Jesus says it is the immoral, irreligious man who goes home right with God and you know that is totally contrary to how the average person thinks about God people often say this it doesn't matter what you believe all that matters is you're a good person you ever heard that you ever said that it doesn't matter what you believe all that matters is that you're a good person Jesus says he tells a story that says the exact opposite. <laughs> Jesus says, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how good of a person you are. What matters is, do you know how to relate to God like this tax collector? See, totally undermines the way that we typically think about God. We need to pay attention to this, tar- to this parable. Whether you're, whether you're new to Christianity, and you're exploring the claims of Jesus for the very first time, or whether you've been around the church for a, a long time, this parable, it upends all of our natural assumptions about God. And so it has something to say to all of us. And, it, and it, let me just tell you, you may be very familiar with this parable. It, it, it seems so kind of simple and obvious on the surface, but let me tell you, there is a wealth of buried treasure in this parable. So much buried treasure in this parable. I want to look at it under three headings this morning. Number one, the problem that we all have. Number two, the solution that many of us seek. And number three, the only answer that works. The problem we all have, the solution many of us seek, the only answer that works. So first, the problem we all have. Now, in this parable, Jesus is hitting on a problem that is, it's universal to every human being. Every single person in this room, every single person on the globe, every single person that has, Existed throughout history, and it's in it says in verse nine that Jesus is speaking to a group of people who were confident of their own righteousness, and then he tells a story about where one of the, the the very first character kind of sets out to defend his own righteousness and the problem that Jesus is talking about in this passage is the problem of righteousness. Now let me just pause here for just a moment because I think for most of us righteousness is not a word that we connect with we, we rarely use it if we do we typically use it in a negative sense oh they they think they think they are so righteous or uh to modern ears that the concept of righteousness it sounds antiquated it sounds dated it sounds a bit too religiousy almost because the the, the concept of righteousness it infers this notion that there are objective moral standards in the world. And we live in a cultural moment that says there actually are no objective moral standards. The only standards that, are, that exist are you should be able to live your life however you want to live it as long as you aren't hurting anyone else. See, we don't, we don't connect with this word righteousness, but in the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word righteousness It basically means approved, accepted, passing scrutiny. Now those are things that we all connect with. I mean these are longings that run deep in every human heart. We long to be accepted. We long to be approved. We long to pass the test. Every Sunday when I go home from church, I walk into my house. And I look at my wife and I say, "So what do you think about the sermon?" My poor wife I mean, you can pray for her. What a, what a terrible question to have to answer every single Sunday. You know what's happening me in that moment inside me? It's not just that I'm wanting to know that the sermon is OK. I'm wanting to know that I'm OK. Ellen DeGeneres, she once said this. She said, I wish I had an approval patch so I could get regular doses that deal with the constant ache that I feel in my heart. Let me give you another example of this. Online dating profiles. Uh, some of you have them. And uh, did you know that 81% of people are dishonest about, on their dating profiles? Uh, Women, listen to this, women on average describe themselves as 8.5 pounds thinner than they really are. And, And their profile pictures are one and a half years younger on average than their current age. Okay, that's a dude laugh. So guys, here's some facts for you. On average, you know, we're no better. On average, on average, Guys claim to be one inch taller than they actually are. They also claim to make significantly more money than they actually do. And get this, both men and women, this is really hilarious, both men and women tend, uh, tend to list interests that they intend to develop, not ones that they already have. See, and here's the point. Everyone is trying to portray a better and more interesting version of themselves now why it's the problem of righteousness we are thirsty we are so thirsty for approval we are so thirsty for acceptance we are so thirsty for love you know enough about me enough about Ellen DeGeneres enough about online dating profiles let's talk about you for a minute will you think about your life for just a moment Think about the ways that you're thirsty for these things. We got some college students in this room this morning. Think about what happened inside you the moment you got the acceptance letter into Berkeley. You know, or think about the time that you were in a relationship and someone first said, I love you. Or or think about the time in a performance review where a boss said, Hey, you're doing a great job, and we're going to promote you. We're thirsty for these things. You know, or maybe it's just the opposite for you. Maybe you have had moments of rejection and failure and unrequited love. Or maybe you've had somebody tell you that you would never amount to anything in life. And you know what it's done? It has seared itself deep into your memory. Our lives, your life, my life, it is built around a relentless search for people to pass a verdict on our lives that says we are significant, that we are worthy, that we are esteemed, to tell us what a good student we are or what a good friend we are, what a good spouse we are, what a good parent we are, how successful we are or how beautiful we are or how smart we are, but here's the deal. No matter how much people tell us, it is never enough. We are starved for righteousness, starved for it. Carl Rogers, who basically came up with the whole idea of client-centered therapy, after decades of research, he, he says this. He says, the central core difficulty in people, as I have come to know them, is that in the great majority of cases they despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. Now I want you to think about this because modern culture says this, it says you know you shouldn't depend on what other people think about you. What other people think about you shouldn't matter you, what matters, what matters is that you love yourself. What matters is that you accept yourself and let me tell you it sounds so good but it is so unrealistic uh, you know during covid when we were having virtual only services we would we would record the some of you don't know this we would record those services on saturdays and here's what that meant it meant that on sundays i was at home watching those services with my family and you know at the end of every service we'll do it today uh, I stand up here, and, and we end the service with a benediction or a blessing. It's God's blessing on our lives. C- can you imagine what it looked like for me to be standing in my living room, wh- you know, receiving my own blessing? I mean, I mean, you laugh now. Can you imagine how silly that looked? We cannot bless ourselves We need more than just self-esteem or self-love. The problem of righteousness, here's the problem of righteousness. We need a verdict from outside of ourselves. So, So how do we go about solving the problem of righteousness? Well, that brings us to the second point, and that's the answer, the solution that many of us seek. And we see this actually in the Pharisee. Now look at his prayer in verse 11. It says that the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Now, sometimes we give Pharisees a bad rap because we think, oh, you know, Pharisees, those, like those religious hypocrites. Well, they were religious, but they were not hypocrites. Pharisees obeyed the law to a T. This, this man did all of these things that he's talking about. All of these things would have been true. He hasn't robbed anyone. He hasn't committed adultery. He fasts. He ties. He does all of these things. Why does he do all of these things? And here's the answer. He does them because it is the default way that the human heart seeks to solve the problem of righteousness. We are desperate for a verdict, and we think that the way we can get it is through our own efforts, our own virtue, our own goodness, our own achievement. We think, if, I could, if I'm just this kind of person, if I live this kind of life, then I'll have the approval, the love, the acceptance that my heart craves. And you see, we're just like this Pharisee. We're all trying to solve the problem of righteousness in the same way. The problem, here's the problem the problem is that very few of us come to this text and identify with this Pharisee. You know, most of us read this story and we think, what a jerk. You know, at least I'm not like that guy. You know, or, or even worse, maybe you hear this story and you think, you know, I, I know somebody who kind of reminds me of him. But it's never us. It's never us, and that's the point. So we need to do a little bit of work here to see some of the ways that we are like him, that we can know we're like him. What are the characteristics of someone who is trying to solve the problem of righteousness through our own efforts, our own virtue, our own goodness. Let me give you just three quick ones. Here's one, comparison. Do you see that in your life? This Pharisee, how does he bolster his self-image? Through comparison. God, I thank you that I'm not like these robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers. When you are trying to get love and acceptance through yourself, you are constantly playing the game of comparison. And sometimes, like this Pharisee, you feel like you're winning in life and in the game of comparison because you're comparing yourself to people that you think are below you. But but oftentimes, you feel like you're losing because you're comparing yourself to people that you feel like are doing better than you. I mean, we compare just about every area of our lives. You know, if you're single, we compare our desirability. Why do they get asked out on so many more dates. We compare our careers. They seem so much more successful. We compare our marriages. They're so much happier. We compare our parenting. Oh gosh, you know, they just have so much more bandwidth. Look at all the fun pictures they post on Instagram. How clean they keep their house. You know, get this, we even compare our spirituality. They seem so much closer to God. We do this in every area of our life. We are trying to solve the problem of righteousness by constantly measuring ourselves against other people, and we often feel like we're losing. And that's one of the reasons we hate ourselves. Here's a second one, Contempt. Contempt. We don't just hate ourselves, we actually hate other people. It's, a, it's incredibly significant who this Pharisee compares himself to. It's not just robbers, evildoers, adulterers, but he compares himself to a tax collector. Tax collectors were the most hated people. They were the most despised. You know why? Because like this Pharisee, a tax collector, he was Jewish. So they share that in common. But tax collectors were considered Traitors. They were enemies because they worked for the Romans. You know, Rome had occupied this territory and they said, okay, we're going to collect taxes and we're going to have these guys do it and here's, here is the base minimum of what you want to give us from your people but anything that you collect over and above that, you can keep for yourself. They were the most hated, the most despised, the most contemptuous. When you try to get self-worth from your own efforts, it is always marked, it is always marked, by a sense of superiority over others. You don't just compare yourself to people, but you look down on them. And friends, let me tell you, this is not just religious people. It is everyone. Bill Maurer, uh, a couple years ago, he did an interview in the New York Times, and he was talking about cancel culture. And you know, Maurer is not religious. I don't He's not really a big fan of religion, actually. But he said this. He said, religions always talk about the one true religion. And now on the left, we have the one true opinion. If you go against that, you do so at your peril. Maurer's saying, look, you you can say one wrong thing, you can post one wrong thing, and it can ruin your life forever. Your life can be over. And then he said this. We live in an age where people want to cancel other people and disappear them. But who is going to be left? I mean, we live in a culture of contempt. This is the air that we breathe. This is why we have lost our ability to disagree. We have gone from being able to disagree with people to now when you disagree with people, you don't just disagree with them, you dehumanize them. You you disdain them. You create caricatures of them. That's because when you look to your own virtue to tell you that you are okay, you get very consumed with telling other people that they're not okay. You see, many people think that religion is the problem that's kind of causing all of this polarization in society, but secularization does the same thing. It leads to the same sense of self-righteousness, the same sense of superiority, the same sense of exclusion as religion does. Philosopher Agnes Callard, she wrote an article called The Emotion Police. She writes this, she says, everybody has somebody that they feel they can safely hate. Everybody has somebody they feel they can safely hate. Each of us is on the lookout for safe spaces in which we can allow our hatred to flourish. We cultivate our garden of contempt. We surround it with walls of self-righteousness. And if you think I'm wrong, then ask yourself, why do Hitler comparisons continue to flourish in political conversations? And maybe you hear this and you think, this is just too strong. You know, I don't, I don't hate anyone. But, you know, verse 11 is really interesting because Jesus says this. He says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. In other words, he wouldn't even get close to the tax collector. And one of the ways that you know you're trying to build your self-worth through your own virtue is when you refuse to associate with anyone who's not like you. you. You refuse to get close to people who are different from you. Let me ask you some questions this morning. Do you have friends who vote differently than you? Who have different political views than you? Do you uh, invite people into your home who don't believe what you believe? Are you building relationships with people who have made very different moral decisions in life than you have? Or have you surrounded yourself with people who are just like you? It's not that we don't have contempt it's that we have learned to be subtle about it and we display it not so much in the things that we do but in the in the people that we refuse to relate to contempt here's here's a third characteristic you have little to no ability to acknowledge your own flaws see notice how this Pharisee begins his prayer God I thank you that and you know typically when you begin a sentence like that you go on to thank the other person for all the good things that they've done you know what this Pharisee does he goes on to talk about all the good things that he's done and you know what he leaves out anything negative about himself anything bad any flaws a couple years ago I was listening to an interview on NPR, they were interviewing a guy who had immigrated from China, and uh, they asked him, you know, what's what's it like getting out? What's what's involved in getting out? And he said, well, you have to do an interview with a government official. And they said, well, what did they ask you? And he said, well, they they ask you why you're leaving. You know, is it the jobs, that the the jobs aren't good enough here? And he said, no, the, the jobs are wonderful. Well, is it the compensation? You know, we're not, we're not paying you enough. No, the compensation is wonderful. Well, is it our government? Is it something you don't like about our government? And he said, no, the government is wonderful. And so then the government official asked him, then why do you want to leave? And you know what he told this interviewer? He said, I just want to live somewhere where you're allowed to say everything isn't Wonderful. When, when, you, when you seek love and acceptance and approval based on your own virtue, your own achievement, when you, when you try to solve the problem of righteousness that way, you have no ability to admit that everything about you is not wonderful. In fact, just like this Pharisee, you, you live in the fantasy world of your own inner wonderfulness. And you have no capacity to admit your inclinations towards selfishness and your own capacity for evil, actually. When you base your self worth on your goodness, you have no ability to admit your badness. And you get very touchy and very defensive anytime criticism comes your way. And your life becomes marked by comparison and contempt. And you see, this is the solution that many of us seek to the problem of righteousness, and it doesn't work. So what does? Point three. The only answer that works. Look, look how different the prayer of this tax collector is. He he says that he stood at a distance, that he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A sinner. Now, that actually does not do the translation justice because in the Greek, he doesn't say a sinner. You know what it says? The sinner. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He's not comparing himself to anyone he's the only one and he's not looking down on anyone you know why because he sees himself at the very bottom and let me tell you this is exactly how the Apostle Paul talks about himself you know Paul wrote a bunch of books in the New Testament and he kind of wrote them over the course of his ministry and over the course of his life in 1 Corinthians 15 which is one of his earliest books Paul says this about himself. He calls himself the least of all apostles. But then Paul wrote Ephesians. Ephesians was written a little later after 1 Corinthians. And in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul calls himself the least of all the saints. But then in in 1 Timothy chapter 1, which is one of Paul's last books that he wrote, he wrote at the very end of his ministry, the very end of his life, you know what he calls himself? The chief of all sinners. He goes from the least of all apostles to the least of all these saints to the chief of all sinners. And you say, wow, Paul was really regressing spiritually. That brother was going backwards. You know, actually, it's just the opposite. The, the more like Jesus that you become, the less like Jesus you feel. That's how humility works in the Christian life. The more like Jesus you become. Yes, God is changing you. But the more like Christ you become, the less like Christ you, be feel, you feel. And the longer you are a Christian, listen to this, the more you see yourself not just as a sinner, but the sinner. You can't look down on anyone. You can't have contempt for anyone. The, the first step in solving the problem of righteousness is admitting how unrighteous you are. The, the, the first step in being loved is realizing how unlovely you are. Now some of you, you hear this and you think, now wait a minute, that doesn't solve the problem of love and acceptance, it only makes it worse. This sounds, some of you think this sounds psychologically and emotionally toxic you say you know I already struggle with self-worth I already struggle with loving myself does God just want me to hate myself more is that what Christianity is about some of you think that's what Christianity is about self-hatred self-loathing is that what Christianity is about no in verse 14 Jesus says those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, those who humble themselves will be exalted. In Philippians chapter 2 it says this, it says that God exalted Jesus to the highest place. That means that he gave him the place of total love and acceptance and approval, and Jesus says that those who have the humility, this is what he's talking about in this verse, to see and acknowledge their own flaws and their own sin can actually have that place as well. Christianity is not about hating yourself, friends. Jesus, he, what he wants to do in your life is to take you to heights of love and acceptance that you never thought possible. And you say, well, how does he do that? Well, look at the first half of that last verse. Jesus says that it was the tax collector who went home justified before God. What does it mean to be justified before God? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. It says that God made him who knew no sin, it's talking about Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Every single person in this room is trying to solve the problem of righteousness. And you know what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says? It says that you have it. In the gospel, you have it. The gospel is the only thing that can give it to you. Most people only understand half the gospel. Most people think that Jesus simply takes our sin. But the gospel is way better news than that, friends. The gospel says Jesus does not simply take our sin. He actually gives us his righteousness. What does that mean? It means that on the cross, where Jesus took our sin, God looked at him the same way he should have looked at us, which was a look of judgment and condemnation, so that now what? He can give you his righteousness. And God can look at you the same way that he looks at Jesus. With love. With acceptance. With blessing. You have God's smile. The gospel says that Jesus took our place on the cross so that now we can be exalted with him. To the highest place of God's favor. Do you see how different that is than the approach that the Pharisee takes, and quite frankly, most of us are taking? I mean, in the world, love and approval, your sense of love and approval, they're actually deeply tied to your efforts, to your goodness to your virtue, to your achievement, but in the gospel they're tied to Jesus's efforts, to his goodness, to his virtue, to what he has achieved in his life and on the cross for you. The Pharisee is confident in his own righteousness, but you know what a Christian is? A Christian is someone who is confident in Jesus's righteousness. You know that you bring no righteousness of your own. Uh, Martin Luther said it this way. He said, learn to know Christ. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have become what you were not so that I might become what I was not. Friends, that's what it means to be justified with God. It doesn't just mean that God forgives you of your sin. It means that God has declared you righteous and dearly loved in his sight. I I have young kids, which means that most of the movies I watch involve talking animals. And one of my favorites is Babe. You know the one I'm talking about, the one about the pig? And there's this scene in this movie that I love, and it's, it's, it it happens, it's when all the other animals, all the other farm animals have, have told Babe that even if he wins first place in the state prize, you know, he's still gonna be turned into ham for the next Thanksgiving. And so, you know what, remember this, what Babe does? He runs away and he gets lost in a storm, and he almost dies, but then Farmer Hoggett goes out to find him, and he searches all over, and then he he brings him home, and Babe is, you know, this pig is is sick, and so Farmer Hoggett begins to, you know, uh, revive him and care for him and kind of bring him back to health, and one of my favorite scenes is when Farmer Hoggett begins singing to Babe and, and dancing around him. And all, all of the other farm animals are gathered around and they're peering in because what kind of a farmer, what, I mean what kind of a farmer sings and dances over a pig? The Christian gospel says what kind of a God welcomes tax collectors? What kind of a God rejoices over broken, messy people like us? What kind of a God embraces sinners? And you know what this table says? It says that Jesus is that kind of God. I I wonder this morning how you would answer this question. How does God feel about you? You ever ask yourself that how does God feel about you I think most of us think God kind of lives in disappointment with us he's frustrated he's he's, he's he's disappointed that we kind of haven't pulled our lives together more than we have or maybe you even think God is angry with you how does God feel about you this morning This table says that if you are in Christ, if you've looked to him as your righteousness and not your own, that God feels about you the same way he feels about Jesus. See, God does not love you to the degree that you are like Jesus. He loves you to the degree that you are in Jesus. And if you've trusted in his righteousness, that is always One hundred percent, always. We need a verdict, friends, from the outside, and this gospel and this table says that we have it. It is the voice that we long for. It is the voice of love, it's the voice of approval, it's the voice of acceptance, and it's offered to you this morning. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table and all that it declares to us. All of the love, all of the acceptance, all of the approval, would you just give us hearts this morning to simply receive it? We are so tempted to come to this meal thinking that we have to prove ourselves or audition for you. We we spend our lives doing that for everyone else. And yet this is the one place where it is truly unmerited. We have nothing to bring and everything to receive, and you have provided it for us through your Son. So help us to receive it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.